everybody. This is Carlos. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Brad Bernardini of Breakneck Boa Company. Brad is one of the top readers on the East Coast. We're going to talk about how he got involved in the boa game and his plans for the upcoming season. We're also going to talk about his work integrating the blood gene into the shark complex. Finally, we're going to talk about what it's like to maintain a breeding collection while working as an orthopedic doctor. Boa Rack Radio is on the air now. Welcome everybody to Bow Rack Radio. I'm your host, Carlos Rojas of Horse Unleashed. Today our guest is Dr. Brad Bernardini of Breakneck Boa Company. Based out in New Jersey, Brad is well known for his cutting edge work integrating the blood gene into many sharp complex boa morphs. Brad, welcome to the show, man. Carlos, thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to have you on here, man. Been uh, admiring your work for a long time and, you know, especially the stuff you've been doing with uh, blood and we'll get to that in a second. But sure. for those of you, of uh, you that don't know Brad, um, I want to give him a chance to kind of give a little bit of his background. So, Brad, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in reptiles and eventually how that led you to get involved with boas. Sure. I, so I, um, you know, a kid growing up in the woods finding snakes and salamanders and, and pr- probably the same story that most of us have. But I really got into boas when I was in college. Um, so I was... Uh, I, I ran track and I played football at uh, Bucknell in Pennsylvania. And a, a good buddy of mine on the track team, after practice one day, said, hey, I got to run over to the animal behavior complex and I got to feed my snake. And I said, I'll go with you. You know, I always loved animals. So we went over and there was this huge, you know, walk-in room that was set up as as basically this this boa's cage. And it was, uh, you know, I, I, I look back now, I had no idea what it was then, but it was probably like a Peruvian, big you know, beautiful yellowish buckskin snake. And, and, you know, it was, it just, I, I, I call it the adrenaline test. Now it, it basically just did something to me and it really kind of got me going. And, um, shortly after that started to do, you know, a lot of research. I, I'm going to date myself, but I, you know, I went to college, there was no internet email was just starting. And, um, so did a lot of, um, written research, um, found some resources for some different animals. And I very quickly started to go through a bunch of different species. I had carpets, I had balls, I had, you know, standard boas. I had some dark central Americans. Um, I, I, I had a white lip Python for a while. And then I came across an article and found emerald tree boas. And I really, really was taken by the arboreal species. And I, I first got an Amazon, then I got two Amazons. Then I transitioned into emeralds. And this is right around when I was graduating from college. And so I took a year between college and med school um, to, to grow up a little bit and get my grades in order. But I had emeralds through this time. And I would wherever I lived, I had a little, a little one-room studio in Philly. And uh, I, one of, I dedicated a whole closet to, to my emerald collection. Um, you know, first went through some wild cots, which was, you know, uh, fun, I bet. Fun. No, yeah, <laughs> not fun, you know, and then, and then got smart enough to, um, look into, you know, captive borns. And I got, I got hooked up with a guy in med school. I went to med school in Chicago, a guy named Noe Perez, who was really good friends with Tony Nikolai at the time. He had an amazing emerald collection, you know, and as I look back now, I didn't realize how unique, um, that, that niche was. Uh, Amazons were just starting to be brought in. Uh, I didn't get into Amazons then. Um, you know, fast forward, uh, you know, med school, residency, too too busy to really keep animals. So I had to get rid of my 
collection um, right. in about 2015. Um, my wife and I have twin boys. They were five at that time. And uh, my wife caught a snake, baby uh, rat snake in the yard and she kept it for the kids and we got home and they were super excited about it. And it really kind of re-energized me to get back into the hobby. They said, can we keep it? I said, well, for a little while, you know, and it really kind of got me going again. So we decided to go to a couple reptile expos and I went to the White Plains show and my kids loved it. And I got, I felt like a kid again. And, um, I, you know, just, it just got me back into it. So that was actually the year that I really started to get back into it. We were just building a new house then, and there was a thousand square feet above our garage that we didn't know what to do with. And it's now the man cave slash reptile room. And it's been awesome. Um, no, no ladies allowed up here. So my wife doesn't get to come <laughs> up here. It's just the, me and the boys. Uh, but we really built a collection, um, you know, from there, and it's it's really been exciting. Um, you know, the thing that was really fun was looking around that reptile show. You know, when I got out, you know, I had emeralds, but there was albinos were just starting to come into the, to right. the trade. Right, right. And, you know, I started to do research, and I could not believe what was out there genetically, and that really excited me because that's really fun stuff. And uh, But the bloods caught me right out, right out, out of the gate, you know, Vin Russo's table, Anthony Martinez, DNA um, breeders. There, I saw some bloods, and I just couldn't stop thinking about them, and uh, and that really kind of sparked a fire with me. Yeah, dude, that's absolutely awesome. And like I said, we're going to talk about the blood stuff in a little bit because I think you were one of the first guys, like within the general population outside of Vin and Anthony and maybe Tom Burke, that you know looked at the potential that bloods had right so let's talk a little bit about some of the other stuff that you're passionate about outside of boas yeah so um you know like i mentioned i, I was I, I played football and i ran track in um in college and uh, just absolute you know sport fan but i found that the you know the discipline and the and the you know the, the, the just the, everything about sport just really um was part of who I was. So at, the first couple of years out of college, I was kind of glad I didn't have a game or a, a meet to go to every right. Saturday. Yeah. Um, but then I started to lose my motivation to train. So I started getting into triathlon. So now I actually compete in Ironman distance triathlon now. Oh, very and, nice. Um, yeah. And it's awesome. It's a great sport, great culture of people. Um, it really kind of forces you to look yourself in the mirror. Um, so I, I, I do that um, as kind of a physical outlet. Um, I'm, I'm an orthopedic surgeon and, uh, you know, I, am a sports medicine specialist, so I, I specialize in shoulder and knee surgery. And, um, but part of that, that I really love is actually the, the injury prevention side and kind of understanding how sports performance and training can prevent some of these injuries that we see. So, uh, we actually started, uh, a new business this past, uh, year. Um, it's a medically backed, um, sports performance center. It's called the energy lab. And, um, and we really wanted to combine, um, you know, orthopedists with physical therapists, athletic trainers, strength and conditioning coaches to kind of work together as a team, like kind of like an Avengers team, so to speak, yeah, each yeah. Have our own, own gifts. And we bring, um, a, a kind of a whole, um, kind of comprehensive view to, you know, an injured athlete or a prevention of an injured, um, athlete. And it's been a really fun thing. So, that's been another real kind of, uh, you know, passion of mine because it really kind of brings together my, my jock side with my, you know, physician side. And that, and that's been a lot of fun. And then, and then, you know, I'm definitely a family guy, you know, Italian, South Jersey guy, you know, it, my parents are here. My dad's one of my partners in the group. Um, you know, my wife and kids, it's, it, you know, they mean everything to me. So, 
you know, family first, sports, medicine, and boas. They're my they're my my four pillars. Yeah, I think I think I'm standing on the same pillars on my, on this side too, dude. Awesome. Um, so you know, it's interesting that you talked about the fact that you know you guys are combining all those things together. Uh, one of the things that I noticed, um, so I'm coming kind of from the military medicine side of the house, right? Yeah. And uh, I spent uh, 10 years in the military special operations community. And we actually had a lot of that stuff going. It seems like for a long time, the only people that were really integrating, you know, the orthopedic medicine into uh, injury prevention and also bringing in the sports performance aspect of it was really, you know, within military special operations yeah. and then professional sports, right? right. So uh, I'm glad that now there is a pl- there are places popping up like your practice yeah. where, you know, everybody ranging from the high school athlete to the professional athlete can go there and get the right type of care and the right type of advisement to help them perform at their maximum levels. So that's pretty yeah, awesome, man. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It hasn't really been done well before because it's it's such a needed concept oh absolutely Uh, dude yeah yeah Yeah. awesome man so let's talk a little bit about you know um how breakneck boas began and kind of what made you go from a hobby collection into a breeding collection uh you know i'm one of those guys that seems to kind of jump into whatever i do with you know both feet head shoulders um and you know, again, it, it, this is always a passion of mine and I, I kind of lost it for a while. And then, so after kind of finding that my, my, you know, my young kids had an interest, it kind of gave me a green light to get it past my wife as <laughs> something. Right, right, you know, right. That, that, Gotta love when the kids serve yeah, as good excuses, well, right? For, the kids, <laughs> for us to be kids again. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I really, you know, I, I, um, I used to, back, you know, when I was in college, I, you know, a good buddy of mine and I used to keep together and we always used to talk about, Hey, wouldn't it be cool to, um, you know, ha- have uh, a breeding program and, and be able to do what we love and create a little bit of a business out of it and have a little bit of, um, you know, financial benefit from it. And yeah, so, totally. Right. You know, I, yeah. I, so I, I thought, kind of thought the same thing and I, I just have, I kind of have this entrepreneurial spirit. So, um, but I also wanted the kids to see, you know, that, that, you know, something that you love could also be something that, um, can be a business, you know, Absolutely. You, can, yeah. you can develop. And so, you know, they're young, but they, they get it there and, and they kind of see what we've done with it. And, um, I, I just think it makes a lot of sense. You know, I know you, you've had some really good guests on, I've listened to your podcast and I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, um, man. And, um, I think it was Eric with, uh, Prism. Yeah, prison Yeah, and he he did a great job, kind of explaining the the business benefits, tax benefits. Um, you know, being able to pay for a, a hobby that you love through some tax breaks and some, you know, business benefits that are out there. I I think it's it's a no brainer. Um, I, I think it shows a level of dedication and passion towards something that is more than just keeping you know um, some snakes in an aquarium stuck in your closet. You know, and I think um, it speaks to the level of interest you have in in the animals and and the you know, the hobby. Yeah, no, that's, that's really awesome. And you know what? I share your sentiment on that stuff because one of the things that I did is, um, you know, I've, I've always loved my boas and I've always loved, you know, being able to keep, but it really was when my kids started getting a little bit older and they got involved with the hobby, Yeah, you know, they, they got to number one, see how to conduct business, how to take care of, yeah. you know, your stock. And in a lot of sense, it's like a different version of ranching, right? 
Sure. It's like it's like the city slicker version of uh, ranching, for, absolutely, for lack of other better terms. But it's always worked out cool. And you know what? Uh, one of the things that I've told people in the past is one of the main reasons, like my daughter was afforded the opportunity to be a top tier athlete. She was actually the number one uh, draft, the number one uh, uh, recruit for softball in the nation, right? Wow. And, and one of the main reasons that she got there is because she was able to play a lot of travel softball. And at the time, during a significant portion of the time that she was traveling for softball, that thing was expensive, man. And I was an active duty guy and I wasn't yeah. making much money. The you. reason that she basically was able to be on teams and to travel all over the country playing was because the BOAs provided the funds yeah. that she used to, you know, participate in her athletic endeavors and you know she essentially worked for it you know she was in here cleaning you know snake crap when she was you know That's, seven yeah. eight years old fully knowing that at the end of the day there was going to be some sort of a payoff for her you know what i mean that's that's exactly part of what i'm doing too i'm you know i i'm getting them involved i want them to learn about work ethic and what it means to put in time and, and see a reward as a result of that time put in and you know i think those are all little lessons and this is like a real world version of that you know uh funny story we we so we also have a, a dog kennel it's actually just one dog he's a stud um yeah the breed is called a tamaskin which is like this rare breed um it, it's um it's meant to look like a wolf i've never heard of it yeah yeah it's a it's a really cool dog i, I love wolves and and you know I, and uh, so when we started to look for puppies I, I found this breed yeah anyway we we got this male and he's a stud so we actually use the the boas and the, and the dog to teach the kids about the birds and bees and it was so <laughs> awesome that's because, awesome dude you know they were there for all this and they got to you know we got to um you know kind of go through that with them but you know little lessons things that you might not think about they're um they pop up all the time and i thought you know this is just a great opportunity for it Awesome, man. So uh, let me ask you, who were some of the people that mentored you or people that you looked up to when you first got into this hobby and even people that maybe you have professional envy for? You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, um, well, definitely going back to the Emeralds, Noe Perez, um, who I think plays more hockey than um, handles boas now. Um, he was a guy who, I, you know, really taught me a lot. Very very professional guy, high standards. I think most arboreal keepers, especially emeralds, are a little bit type AAA and a little bit right. OCD about things. So yeah. he kind of taught me that level, um, you know, of, of perfection, so to speak, when it comes to conditions. Um, after getting back into it here, um, I was a little bit of a lone wolf for a while. You know, I did a little um, research online and looked at a ton of pictures and did some, you know, shows. Uh, Vin Rosso is, is, I've gotten some animals from him. He's been very good, but there's a guy that lives right around the corner from me. His name is John Romeo. Romeo's right. Oh yeah, up. of course, man. John's a buddy of mine. John, yeah. yeah. John, John is, and John and I are very close and, and we, we, um, back and forth frequently to each other's place where we've gotten to be, uh, really good friends through this. And, um, he has been, you know, a tremendous resource to me for, um, you know, just, just tips and tricks and have you heard of this and what do I do with this? And, you know, who do you know that does this? He's just been great. He's a great guy, super guy. Absolutely. He's amazing animals. He's got a little bit of a sleeper collection. Yeah, um, he does. Shout out to John yeah, out there. Yeah. Shout out to John for sure. Um, you know, and through John, I, I got to be pretty friendly with Ryan and Bob Horsch at r and Reptiles. And, uh, those guys make some absolutely amazing, amazing animals. I mean, um, you know, Ryan, over the last couple of years has kind of gotten a little quiet. Um, he fell in love and got married, you know, that whole thing. Yeah. Kind of got in the way of the, you know, got in the way. Boo. Of the, yeah. <laughs> boo. 
Um, but, you know, great guys. And um, so those guys have been very helpful, too. Um, Chris Gilbert, you know, I, I fell in love with yeah. Jungle Blood, Gene, and Chris has been great. You know, he's one of those guys you can call to get, uh, you know, the background on any gene or history Absolutely. of any animal. Or, and he's really, really technical. Um, you know, he's been great. Um, you know, th- those are all guys. Mike Weissman, I, you know, I, 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 I email with him back and forth. Um, you know, Mike Roscoe, uh, Rich Del Bono, those guys have all been, been great, you know, and, Absolutely. Uh, you know, so uh, yeah, you know, that's one of the things I really love about the hobby is that the, the network of people, and I love the diversity of people that are in it. And, and, um, it's just, it's just a fun, fun group. Yeah, no, that that's awesome, man. So let's talk a little bit about what you're currently doing. Talk to me about some of the projects you're working on and uh, some of the things yeah. that you're hoping to accomplish this year and, and the upcoming year. So when I first got into this, I literally was, again, like I said, just struck by all the genes and, and the colors and the, and I, I, I just, I went a little nuts. I, um, I, 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 I think I got the arc syndrome. I became a little impulsive in my buying. I don't know that I had a plan. Um, and I, I would, I would urge any newbies to really not do what I did. And that's probably, I don't want to say it's a regret cause I think you learn by your failures, but, um, also so much of a failure as it is just a lesson. But so I, I really kind of uh, then took a step back and said, you know what, just like in medicine, um, we become so subspecialized because you can become very, very good at a, at a, at a very narrow range of things and therefore provide a better product. And, you know, my product in, in, in medicine is surgery and outcomes. And, um, so I thought, you know what, it makes sense to do that in, in this industry as well. And again, one of the things that really grabbed me was, was blood. And I realized at the time there just weren't a lot of people that were really focusing on blood. Um, I I have a tendency to, yeah, you know, I have a tendency if everybody's going, you know, left, I'm going to go right. And so a lot of people are starting to work with call blood, um, beautiful and, and really cool projects. Uh, but I decided to take it in the opposite direction just because I wanted to have a niche market because I knew that I was going to be uh, someone that had, you know, limited time to have a, a relatively small collection and that I wanted to, you know, produce the, you know, the rarest mix with the highest quality that I could. And I, I couldn't just have a big generalist, um, hot, you know, group. So I, I went the sharp blood route. Um, and that was really my, uh, once I decided to focus my practice, um, in boas, that's, that's really where, where I, I went. And, um, and I'm really glad I did. I think there's a lot of really cool projects um, that kind of brought me into the um, T positive, sharp, compatible projects, right? Which I'm really very excited about. So um, Dave Palumbo beat me to it. I think we had animals from the same litter, to be honest. But he beat me to it and produced Paradigm Blood um, the year before I did. So I think his were in 17. I made my first batch in 18 um i repeated the breeding this year and made another batch they're just absolutely amazing animals um i I think almost better than uh you know the fire opal i I actually um was really going towards the fire opal and i just happened to find uh, a 2013 female that was a double head bwc berry blood and um and so i i said you know she's of age i'm going to throw in a double head sharp blood with her and it really um, I, I got some amazing animals, um, from them. Oh, so, and, so you, you're using the berry bloodline, huh? 
That, half of it's the Barry bloodline. Really? Yeah, that, half, that's half, awesome, yeah, man. The female's Barry. Yeah. People are sleeping that on was, that bloodline a lot, man. <laughs> well, you know, it's really interesting. You know, it's the same. It's from the same blood gene. So they all came over from El Salvador. Right. And, um, and you know, the original blood bag, so to speak, had type 2 anteries and bloods in it. But then they were line bred from there. So the berry blood is just kind of a darker, deeper um, kind of uh, like a richer color, right? Yeah, richer color, but they they have these dark these dark hues, a little bit maroons in them, and they're they're really they're really neat. More popular right now, it seems, in Europe than they are here. But but yeah, um, I'll tell you, they're really amazing. So I've actually been looking for some of those. Um, you know, look, you can you can name the bloodline, but the reality is, I've been looking for that phenotype. Right. Um, since since um, since I started getting back into it, I you know I came across a couple guys uh, over the last two years that were these little sleeper collections. The guys just you know um, have have amazing animals, and I, I've really I'm really trying to create a foundation now for for the future. And I think that you know my my kind of my palette, so to speak, will be the you know the blood sharp and the and the T positive you know um, you know paradigm paradise uh, blood projects, and then from there we'll start to really add in some, you know, uh, color saturation and some codon pattern genes and some pastels. And I think there's so much, um, you know, possibility. IMG, I, I, um, I, I can't wait to see a, you know, my, one of my little guys <laughs> understands genetics. Uh, like, Oh, that's awesome. It's really, yeah, it's really cool. And uh, his, his big, you know, and I agree, I don't, I, I can't say it's just his, but, um, you know, a, a paradigm jungle IMG blood, um, I think, or a paradise, you know, you can, you can flip flop those, I think would be, uh, you know, an amazing visual animal. Um, so there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of, um, you know, potential out there. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. Um, are there any other projects kind of outside of the blood complex that maybe you have, or you're thinking about picking up that kind of have you excited? Um, I think they're probably all kind of peripherally related to, to the blood project, but I, got it. I'll tell you one other um, gene that I really like is the square tail gene. Um, huh, I think it's yeah. been um, super underrated. Uh, yeah, super underrated. I think you know the, the cool thing about it is it's a it's a uh, it's both a color and pattern recessive gene, or at least we think it is right now. And uh, so you know they originally came from a Coupe line of, of pastel, and and uh, they're just really really neat animals. They have a they have a lot of color. They have a really uh, you know, strong pattern, which I like, I tend to like very strong kind of, uh, aggressive patterns. Um, and, uh, and the coloration, the saturation is amazing. So I think to be able to plug those into some of the, you know, sharp and blood projects, I think would be cool. But I think ultimately everything is going to probably feed back into the blood for me. Right. Um, and that's, you know, that's just, like I said, that's just going to be my niche. And I think there are other guys that do, um, and girls that do a lot of really cool things in different, um, subspecialty niches that I think will, you know, I'll, let them run with that ball. Awesome, man. So let me ask you, what are some important lessons you learned kind of setting up your, your reptile business, you know, kind of throughout the hobby? Uh, you know, from, you know, from a, a technical perspective, I, I think the lessons I've learned is don't, don't get your animals before you have a stable environment for them to Ooh, be. Amen. Um, amen. Yeah. And I, and I was, I, I you know, Facts. I, I yep. through, through college and, and through med school, I was constantly moving. Um, and I, you know, I could, I could tell you stories. I drove from Chicago to New Jersey with a, you know, 
four emerald tree boas, you know, in my passenger seat. Um, <laughs> you know, it, ridiculous, ridiculous stories. And, you know, then I'd come home and I'd have to set up a whole, you know, um, room. And I was, you know, um, pretty dedicated to them. And so, you know, it never hurt me. But I, I think a lot of people now get, get really excited about getting the animal and then they get it and then they try to figure out what to do with it and how to create a stable environment. So I think having, you know, um, stable conditions, humidity, temperature, you know, doing your background research, reading the books, understanding, you know, what you need to do to give them the environment that they're going to be able to thrive in, I think is, is critical before you start to bring in your animals. So I, I would say invest in your environment before you invest in your animals. That's actually a really good tip, man, because I, I'll be honest, I'm one of those people that definitely made that mistake. So like back when I was 20 years old, I had just graduated uh, from the special operations pipeline, okay, yeah. um, which is like a whole two-year deal within the military, right, just so you can essentially even get to a team, right? Um, and during that time, um, my wife was also in the in the Navy, and we actually had to drive my little collection, which this is back in 2000, dude, and we're talking about, you know, a relatively small collection, but expensive for the time. So I had some yeah, al sure. albino boas, right, Wow. that, that I had picked up uh, uh, from Bob Clark at the time. And, wow. dude, we drove them. My wife was stationed in Connecticut at the time, and I had just gotten assigned to uh, my first special operations unit in uh, California. So we had to drive all the way from Connecticut to California in a oh, geo prism man. with Classic. nothing but oh dude it was such yeah, a shit I, show I, 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 like I'm talking about like holding the snakes in front of the heater and it's the middle of winter because I I, was just, I, I graduated in November from my yep. pipeline so I was supposed to report at the beginning of December at my new unit and we're driving around holding these things up to the heater just freaking out you know like sticking yeah. snakes in our clothes to keep them make sure they're you know at the right temperature yeah, <laughs> like now I, now that i remember it was just such a shit show man but you know I, we didn't know any I, better yeah i did the same thing i used to put the blast the you know the the, the foot heat <laughs> on and throw them in a, underneath there and let them warm oh yeah that's yeah, crazy yeah. but i think that's i think that's important i, th I think a lot of people because the rest of it falls in place i think if you yeah, give totally. them what they need you know, you'll be able to keep, uh, you know, a happy collection and, and then you can continue to build it if you have, you know, the space and the environment that you need. Because otherwise, you know, you start it, they get sick, you yeah. know, you're thrown off, you're, you're discouraged and you're not going to continue to, you know, kind of thrive in the hobby. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. And because of those mistakes in the beginning, like there was a couple of times where I felt like getting out of the hobby, you know, yeah. like I remember when one of my albino boas, when we finally got to the West Coast, um, one of my at the time my daughter was fairly young and she opened up the terrarium because this is back in the terrarium days because yeah. nobody was keeping anything exactly. in cages right and uh one of the albino boas got out and it disappeared oh. for about six months oh while God. i was on my first deployment right so i'm out there yeah. like you know running special operations in the middle of freaking nowhere you know not being able to call home and yeah. I get home only to find out that my snake's been missing for about four and a half well, months. Well, it's probably good that you didn't know. Well, the funny thing is I go to turn on my car, which had been sitting in the garage this whole time, right? <laughs> and the car won't turn on, so I, you know, pop the engine. I'm like, well, you know, do I need an oil change? Did I get a rodent in there? And I start looking in, dude. And the freaking snake was sitting in the middle of the engine. Oh, my God. How I didn't kill that poor snake it yeah, was just exactly. absolutely amazing. But she ended up living for another like 15 years. Well, so it all worked story. out, you know, yeah. but I feel you, man. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. 
Yeah, man. So let me ask you, uh, where do you see the future of the hobby going? Uh, you know, I, I think it, to me, yeah, and I don't know, maybe it's a selfish um, hope, but I, I, I think it seems to me that people are becoming a little bit more specialized in, in their collections. Totally. Uh, like, like I talked about earlier. And I think w- what that's going to do is it's going to force quality and it's going to force, um, you know, instead of having this uh, competitiveness between breeders and who's first to the, you know, for, to the world's first and who's, you know, who's got, uh, you know, this gene in their collection first, I think it's going to allow a little bit of a better collaboration between people. And, you know, cause when you're specialized in something and you do something you know really well, there'll be a handful of people that do it too, but you'll feel a kinship with them. And yeah. then, but you'll also know, you know, where the, where the people are that do the other stuff that you don't do well. And you can say, Oh, you know what? I don't do that, but this guy does. And he does a really good job of it. Call him. And I think it creates a little bit more of a community and, um, and a collaboration. I mean, our, you know, our, so for instance, my, my orthopedic group, we have, we're pretty big. We have 50 some people in it. Oh, wow. And, um, that's a good size practice. So if I, yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, if I don't do something well, I'm very quick to say, Hey, I, you know, um, that's out, out of my wheelhouse, but I have a, you know, partner that does a really good job of that. And I think people appreciate that. And I, I think the same would go for, um, you know, the boa community and, and, you know, the reptile, uh, game. And I, I think that, um, I, I see it kind of heading in that direction. So again, I, I think that'll force quality because when you're doing a lot of something, you're able to see some nuances in maybe the litters and some of the color variations and some of the pattern variations that you say, you know, I know what this does. I've seen it five times before. And yeah. this is, this is the one that I'm going to hold back and breed, or this is the one that I'm going to recommend to this, you know, client that, you know, wants to, to, to buy a high level bow and, and put into a serious breeding program. Um, because you know, if you just produce one or two litters here and there with different genes and you haven't seen it before, you may miss some subtle cues that you otherwise would have picked up on if you would have had some experience. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, man. So brother, we're going to take a quick break right now. And then, uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about, uh, some tips about keeping your collection, uh, when you have a real busy schedule. All right. Sounds good. All right, guys, we're back. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, Brad, is what it's like to keep a collection with a busy schedule. Um, The reality is like this day, most of us work, right? And despite where your career is, whether it's from being an auto mechanic to an enlisted military member to a doctor, most of us have a significant time demand on our hands, right? And on top of that, a lot of us are parents, and that puts another strain onto the free time that we have that we, if we were single, we would be able to dedicate to our animals. Well, so the thing is, despite whatever our schedule is and you know how much time we have available, our animals still need to be cared for and they still need to be given the best possible care. Um, so with that in mind, what are some of the things that you do to ensure that you have enough time to take care of your collection, especially while working as a doctor? Yeah, you know, uh, great, great question. Um, I, I think it probably goes back to my you know my college experience. so I, I played sports um, and so I, I had always been kind of forced into a very structured um, schedule, and I think I, I tend to thrive in that in that kind of environment. And so it seems to me that the, the busier I am, the better I am, so to speak. And I think there's probably some um, 
lessons that people can learn from that. I, I, I think what I try to do is I, I try to balance my life uh, between the really those four pillars that I talked about earlier, you know, my family being number one on that. I think, you know, there, there are stories of people that become so uh, obsessed by their collection that they're not spending time with their family and their kids. I think that's um, absolutely wrong. Um, you know, but profession, um, taking care of yourself, you know, I, I still train, I, you know, I work out every day. I think that's critical. Um, and then y- your animals and your family. So, um, I, I think balance and efficiency of time are the two probably big, um, things to focus on. And, and, you know, there's some interesting, um, resources that are out there to, to actually help. There's a great book called the five choices hmm. and, and it talks about, um, kind of um, optimizing the time that you have in the busy world that we live in. And it really talks about these four different quadrants of, of time based on, you know, urgency and importance of, of, of different factors in life. And I'm not going to get into the details of it, but, but, you know, a couple of the things that I, I really took from that were to define the, the roles that you have in your life and what are those roles and, and how important are those roles to you? And then what are the goals within each of those roles? And right. I think that really makes you know, it sounds kind of silly to have to sit down and, and actually write those out, but sometimes going through an exercise like that actually helps. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and so, you know, um, it kind of forced me to determine that those are those four pillars of my, you know, my life that I think are important. Um, I think you have to know when to not overextend yourself. And I, I believe me, I've been there before. Um, and I think, um, sometimes you have to walk the line to realize what that is, but I think you have to, make a point to schedule each one of those roles into your day. Um, you know, family time, workout time, obviously professional or work time is, is already usually set up for most of us. And then, and then your, your hobby, your boa time. Um, and I think if you have a, a, you know, a reasonable schedule on a daily basis where you can say, okay, this hour is dedicated to this part of my life. Um, you know, and don't cheat. You can't go over. You, you, you know, no extra, no extra time in any of those, uh, scheduled windows. Um, I, I think it's really helped me personally to be able to kind of, uh, balance life in the way that I want to do it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Now, um, one of the things that you brought up is that a lot of times some people feel silly, you know, setting up those type of exercises. And the one thing I would add to that is that regardless of whether or not you feel silly, it's a tool, right? And like any other tool, if you Absolutely. leverage it correctly, it's going to provide you an advantage. If you look at people that are successful regardless of what industry they're in, right, one of the common threads, right, is the fact that planning does become one of the things that they tend to focus on, right? So, for example, like a professional team doesn't go to a game and wing it. You know what I mean? If you're you're playing football, you know, you're practicing, which is great, but you're also coming up with a specific game plan for whatever the specific situation that you're going to face on Saturdays or Sundays, right? So that's one of the things that people need to keep in mind. When I was in special operations, we would never just go out on a mission and be like, yeah, let's go kill some bad guys today. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? We yeah. would take a long time to you know, do a lot of reconnaissance to be able to come up with you know, tangible mission plans that would address some of the things that we would be facing. Yeah. And part of that was a really big time component where we would set realistic goals for ourselves and time hacks that we had to meet at every one of those kind of stations for lack of better better word sure. right and by doing so we were able to be a little bit more successful and we were able more importantly to build some buffer time right into whatever we were doing and i yeah. think when people don't do that when it comes to their collection then what they're going to end up feeling like is like they're constantly chasing their tail right 
That's exactly right. Yeah, that's actually the concept of this book, The Five Choices. So it basically talks about the more time you spend on emergencies and urgent issues, the less time you have for proactive planning and thinking and um, and and you're you end up you end up chasing your tail. And then the other part, you know, the other you know, quadrant so to speak of of that um, you know, that that graph basically is, is wasted time. And right. there have actually Absolutely. been some studies that suggest that most people waste up to four hours a day doing things that aren't really productive, so to speak. And, right. uh, you know, whatever that means to, to you individually is, is obviously a very personal thing. But, you know, to think that, you know, four hours of our day are going to stuff that probably doesn't need to have um, that time is, is kind of scary, you know. So um, I think to be efficient with your time and, and to use it well and, and to be productive is, is probably what's helped me to, you know, accomplish some of the things that I've accomplished to date. Yeah, no, totally, man. I think anybody that's ever accomplished anything significant, that's one thing that you will always find. And, you know, I have a lot of friends who are uh, very successful within the business world, within the professional sports world, and yeah. obviously within, you know, the medical world. And one of the common themes that I see out there with, with these folks is the fact that they always try to utilize their time to the most efficient manner possible, right? So, for gotcha. example, um, if one of the things that I noticed that's really common with the most successful boa breeders is the fact that they get obsessed about everything that they do, whether yeah. it's boas or whether it be like picking up a new hobby, right? It's like, sure. for example, we're, we're, uh, when we were offline, we are talking a little bit about you know archery and bow hunting. Most guys that kind of get into this sort of stuff – they don't go out and they pick up a bow and that's kind of where it ends. They kind of shoot it here or there. Yeah. They they go on a research binge. You know, it's the same thing when people yes. get get interested in boas. They don't just be like, oh, look at this pretty boa. The ones that actually get successful are the ones that are up till like 1 a.m. at night, you know, yep. looking yep. at the various morphs, figuring out how they interact with each other. And then you, essentially that passion that gets projected into their little hobbies if leveraged correctly is the passion that ends up making them successful in life, right? Yeah, I totally agree. And you got to channel it in the right direction to be able to have it produce, you know, results for you. And I think, um, you know, that, that's, that's the critical thing. You know, I, I, I actually, um, I, I'll sit around and, and daydream a little bit, but you know, most of my time is, is pretty focused on the moment that I'm in. And, and that's actually another point I think to bring up there. You know, um, there there have been a lot of uh, recent research on happiness and what creates happiness. And one yeah. of the things that's been found to create happiness the most is just being in the moment that you're in, and and not letting your mind race too much about all the other issues that you have. Absolutely, What's be in the future, man. What happened in the past? And and I think that's one of the things I like about you know the other aspects of my life. You know, when I'm out training, you know, for a, an Ironman, I'm on a six you know hour bike ride. I'm thinking about pedal stroke i'm thinking about the road i'm thinking about you know where i am in the moment um you know when i'm out on a you know 20 mile run similar thing when i'm in the snake room and i'm with the snakes i find it very almost meditative you know and yeah um i don't overhandle my animals but i, I you know when I, when they're out i think it forces you to be very calm and quiet and you got to get you know get your energy in the right Absolutely. Space there's like a certain Zen level yeah, to it, right? There's a Zen level to it. And, and all those things have been shown to actually correlate. I mean, that's what meditation is effectively. It's, it's being able to be in the moment and, and, you know, not have your mind race about all the other things that are going on in your world. So I think those are all important lessons. Yeah, totally, man. So let me ask you, what are some of the potential pitfalls that people should try to avoid 
uh, when it comes to uh, managing their collection with limited time? Well, I think, you know, we kind of alluded earlier to overextending your, the size of your collection and the breadth of your collection. Um, I think trying to chase what other people are, are kind of doing in the, in the, in the hobby, I think is a dangerous thing. You know, my personal feeling is I, you know, I got into the blood genes and some of the things that I do because I, you know, again, they passed the adrenaline test for me when I, when I look at these morphs and I, I you know, and I, I interact, I, it just really gets me excited. There's a million things I can look at a million genes that other people probably love that probably don't do it very much for me. And I'm going to leave those to somebody else. And I'm just going to focus on my little niche. And I think um, probably not, you know, that would be my biggest advice is to not, not chase other people's uh, goals and to not overextend your, your collection or the size of your collection by kind of getting caught up in this buying this arc syndrome where you want to have two of everything. Yeah. And, and it's a real thing, man. You know, I think oh, most yeah. of us go th- through that at some phase, at some point, you know, within our, co- within our collective days. I did yeah. it too, man. You know, there was yeah. a time where I had, you know, <laughs> like 15 different species yeah. instead of focusing on, you know, one or two species that I could have done really well. I kind of half-assed 15 different species. Exactly. That's you exactly know? right. Yep. Yeah. Awesome, man. So uh, let's talk about um, if you have any tips on things people can do to maximize their time efficiency. So give me some tangible items that you do for yourself to ensure that you use your time effectively. So I, I actually, I really do schedule um, my day to, to the best ability that I can. So I, I, um, I start every day with a workout just because I know that that's protected time that nobody's going to be able to take from me. So I'll get up at five and I'll train for two or three hours if I'm, you know, in race mode. Um, and then, you know, I, uh, you know, clearly work is going to be scheduled. So for me, you know, work is typically nine, nine to five, um, kind of thing. And then from there I'll schedule, specific time to be able to block out for, um, you know, family time or important issues, uh, that, that have to do with my personal life. Um, I think those are very important things to do. You know, it's, it'd be very easy for me to let those things go if I just let everybody else around me, um, control my time. So I think you have to be able to lean back against what other people are asking of you, um, outside of your family. You never lean back against your family especially your wife. That's bad. Oh yeah. But, Oh yeah. yeah. But, 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 but I think it's okay to lean back against the other things that want to encroach on our lives, um, because they can be detrimental to the things that really make you happy. And, um, so I think that that's probably a a tangible thing, you know, schedule your day, like really schedule your day. And again, it might seem a little bit, um, a little bit OCD to people who aren't used to doing it, but I think it really, um, has, has helped me, uh, frankly. Um, and then, you know, other other things just from like a medical health perspective um you know eat right sleep well um hang out with your friends and drink some beers you know i think those are the things that are those are all things that are real real connections to health and and wellness and um i think in this day and age not enough people um, do those things yeah no absolutely man so let's uh, pivot a little bit and let's start talking about your work with the blood gene and with uh, and how that gene has interacted with recessive morphs. So yeah. the blood gene is a really interesting gene in the sense that right now, obviously, it's one of the hottest genes in the market. Everybody seems to want to have or bring in blood gene into their their collection. But the ironic thing is for a really long time. You know, the blood gene was relegated to the back row of most people's collections, whether it was because like it was seen as a purely Central American gene 
right? Yeah. And then the Colombian people didn't want to bring it in, didn't want to mess with it, right? Because they're like, sure. oh, no, that's a small boa gene, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, simply because it was just an afterthought to a lot of people. People obviously were aware of it. It's one of the oldest recessive genes in the hobby, yeah. right? Um, but really, it didn't really start hitting hard until probably Tom Burke produced the first uh, Sharp Bloods. And then people started paying attention because all of a sudden, you know, he released a couple of videos on YouTube. And all of a sudden, yeah. people lost their damn mind. So people started thinking, oh, I need blood in my collection because I want to make some blood sharps. I want to bl make some blood calls. And yeah. it seems like the majority of the people started bring, working on the blood call kind of side of the house because I think most people had calls in their yeah. collection because that's, you know, the reality is that was the most affordable albino bloodline uh, at the time. But now it's become that this gene is definitely a serious must-have for any collector, right? So let yeah. me ask you, why did you choose to start working with the blood? What attracted you to that, to that particular gene? It just got me. You know, the first time I saw bloods, um, nice bloods, at a show, I, they just really kind of kind of grabbed me. And, um, I, you know, it's hard to, it's hard sometimes to... Uh, you know, verbalize what you feel when you when you look at an animal or you see. You know, I think. But it's visceral, right? Yeah, I, I, that's what I, I think I've mentioned a couple of times. I, I call it the adrenaline test. I mean, it, it's got to get you. It's got to do something to you. And then I like to try to walk away from it. And if I can walk, <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, it's like you know, it's like that you know expensive car you want to buy. You, You're you like, no. Nope. Walk away, <laughs> and then you yeah, come you back and do the loop. From it, yeah. If you can, if you can walk away from it and and stay away from it, then then it wasn't you know right. And but the, this is something that just kept pulling me back, and and I think initially there probably was a little bit of um, this perception that you know brown, you know uh, bloods brown out when they get older, and uh, you know some of them did. And yeah. um, but I think again, just like any other gene that's out there, I think it's about the quality of the gene and the and the line um, that you're dealing with. And um, we're I think we're starting to see some refinement of of some of these bloodlines. And I think we're starting to understand which bloodlines do brown out with time and which uh, become more vibrant, you know, with time. And, um, and then, of course, once you start to add multiple recessive genes together, you know, uh, you know a, a blood shark, fire opal, sun dragon, those, those are really amazing. Um, and to be able to start to think about where else you can go with those is, is really kind of, for me, exciting. The thing that I, I really, the, one of the reasons I went in the sharp direction instead of the call direction was because I like to be, you know, I like to be a little bit of off the beaten path. And at the time, everybody was starting to work with uh, call bloods. And I said, you know what, I, I'm not going to play catch up. I'll go this way. There were a handful of people that were doing it. And, and the thing that, at the time, it was just the Sharp Blood Project that kind of took me in that direction. And then I started to kind of get into the, the Paradigm and the Paradise um, genes, which, um, you know, are Prodigy and BWC. Um, I, you know, I realized that there's a really cool genetic kind of component to it. And I, you know, the, the kind of the, the medical, you know, science guy really kind of enjoys that part of, of thinking about these things. So I, you know, a lot of people are a little bit confused about what, you know, a paradise or a paradigm is. And so I'll just step back and just, we'll just do a little brief synopsis. Yeah, definitely. So, That'd be great, man. Because I know, yeah. I know a lot of people are interested in uh, the genetics associated with the sharp complex, yeah. but you know, they're intimidated by the names because they hear blood woman, caramel, paradigm, yeah. paradise. Right. And right. you know, they, 
there's a little bit of a sticker shock at that, I, I would say, to yeah, a lot it's, of folks. It's, yeah, and I, I think it's it's a little confusing genetically, so people don't really understand. Yeah, so, so break that down you know, for us, man. There, yeah, so we have we have you know, albinos um, in in simple terms are are the the lack of uh, melanin, which is the the pigment that produces dark colors. There's actually three different subtypes of melanin. There's a brown, a black, and a red. And so, Call and Sharp, when they originally were were kind of imported, were bred together and found to not be compatible. So. Right off the bat, that's something I think everybody should actually take a step back and think about because call is considered a T negative or T minus, which means uh, tyrosinase, which is this enzyme that makes melanin. So if you don't have it, if you're negative for that that gene to make that enzyme, you can't make melanin. So that means you can't have dark colors. So that's that's where we get the light colors and the pink eyes and all that good stuff. Well, sharp isn't compatible with call. So if sharp truly is a T negative then why isn't it compatible? So that was the first question that kind of got me. It didn't make sense to me. And you can have different genetic, you know, uh, recessive deficiencies that, that result in the same outcome. But that was the first thing I thought was a little weird. Right. The other thing was once we found that you had these two um, T-positive genes, uh, the BWC, Boa Woman Carmel, and, and the Prodigy, um, that were actually found to be on the same allele mm-hmm. with the sharp gene. So the, uh, an allele basically is the parking spot on the chromosome for a gene. And if these genes are paired together, that means they're, they're performing a similar function. And so, you know, right off the bat, it kind of, it kind of muddies the water a little bit with regard to what we think is an albino, because in my opinion, there's something more going on with the, with the sharp gene. And you know, you look at all the the work that's being done in, in Europe and, and actually some of the, some guys in America are doing it like Tyler Johnson, um, right. know, Chroma is doing a great job with shout out big these, Tyler. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out. I, I, I speak to him from time to time. See you in August for the bow hunt, Tyler. Yeah. Oh, uh, you guys doing a bow hunt together? Yeah, man. Tell you August, yeah, better, third week might, of August, man. Come he out. He might not be, he might not be healed up. You let me know. I'll take his spot. We'll go. I'll go. <laughs> anyway, but you know, um, some of these purples and reds, and now blues. If you look at what um, you know, Tom uh, Tomas Seeprich is doing. Yeah, Seeprich uh, over there. Uh, you know, yep. it, it makes you wonder. You know, where all these colors are coming from, and is 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 there an element of th- does the sharp albino actually carry some element of of a T positive? Because again, there's different subtypes of melanin genes. Wow, so, dude, I haven't know, thought about that. You're blowing my mind a little bit. Yeah, well, it's kind of fun to think about, and you know, and I might be totally off. And I've asked some guys that are smarter than I am about you know whether anybody's really looked at this and I, I haven't gotten an answer that they have but how, how could that gene be on the same allele how could they be compatible so you know the options you know from breeding um, you know a prodigy to a sharp um, are, are going to be that you can have you know normal which is always the dominant so you're not going to you're not going to see anything special or you can get a paradigm yeah and, oh, I'm sorry or a um, a paradigm if it's a prodigy gene. And, you know, when you look at what options are there, you could have a, you know, in, in that match, you could, and this is why it gets confusing. I think this is probably why some people don't want to get into the gene because they don't understand it. And I'm probably not doing it justice by trying to explain it. But, um, you know, you, you can have a sharp, you could have, a, you know, a visual prodigy, or you could have a paradise. And they all look different, but they're on the same genetic 
parking spots, which is really kind of cool to me. And, um, and I also like the diversity in the litter. So you could have a litter that has sharps, prodigies, and, you know, other, other genetic mixes in there too. So I think, uh, it's a fun gene. I think, I think it's, uh, it's something that I, I'm excited to work with and, um, you know, in really, really high level cases, I think it gives a lot of these other T positive, um, genes a run for their money. Absolutely, man. So let's talk a little bit about some of your project highlights and things that you're working on within kind of the, the sharp complex and the blood mixed in. Yeah. Well, right now I'm, I'm trying to create a, a really solid foundation for, for, you know, basically the palette that I want to work on, which is sharp blood and, and, you know, um, T plus, uh, blood. So I, I was lucky enough to have two liters of, of paradigm bloods. Um, I have a two year old girl now that I'm raising up. I only got one in that litter, but I got 2.1 this year and they're all amazing. So I'm really excited about that. I had another litter, um, my last litter of the year here where I got, um, I got, 3.2 um visual blood Ooh. sharp mixes so i got yeah i got oh, two man. fire opals and i got three sharp albinos um all the shop al- sharp albinos are male and the two fire opals are are female um so I, I i've got some potent stock now that i think um unfortunately for everybody interested i'm probably going to be sitting on um, <laughs> don't blame <laughs> you, know, you and i yeah and i and i put together some other um, all my pairings this year had blood. I, I delivered uh, six litters in three weeks this year, which was absolutely crazy. Um, so, you know, we had a total of 74 babies filled the rack and then spilled over a little bit. So um, they all had blood and um, they're all, you know, basically going to create foundations for the future. Um, I, I'm really excited to put IMG into the Paradise Blood and Paradigm Blood projects. Uh, I'm hoping next year to produce uh, a Paradise Blood uh, Jeff Ronnie and, and Ryan Horsch and, and Bob are uh, into that project as well. And I'm sure other people have kind of gotten in from, from those guys. So um, that project's about two years old with the double hats um, or hats. So it's, uh, it's fun. That's, that's kind of where I'm headed with things. And then, you know, we'll, we'll try to add in some of the codom genes and whatnot. Awesome, man. So let me ask you, why do you think that this project is poised to be one of the key projects in the future of the hobby? I think uh, I think because it's just visually stunning. Um, I think it's um, it's poised to be an important um, part of the future because it's a double recessive. Um, I think one of the focuses of my my collection is to have as many recessive visual recessive um, animals as possible, just because it's hard to do. So you're not going to have anybody really flood the market and start to affect the the value uh, of your animals, and especially if you can start to build on uh, quality, um, onto that, you know, just the fact that it's a hard gene to, to hit on, uh, double recessives. I think, uh, you know, even with codons added to that, I think then you add quality to that. And I think it's one of those things that'll, there'll be, it'll be a long time before it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a played out, you know, uh, combination. Um, and, and I just like it and it's, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's really what kind of gets, gets me going, uh, about the hobby. And, um, my nine-year-old likes it. Hey, dude, that that means that it stands yeah. the, the eye yeah, test right there, that's brother. exactly right. Awesome, man. So we're going to take a break real quick, and then when we come back, we are going to hit the Dirty Dozen. The Dirty Dozen. All right, guys, it's time for the Dirty Dozen. So 
Brad, I'm going to ask you 12 questions. You give me 12 answers. You can be as short or as long with them as you want to, okay? Yep. All right, man. Number one, what's the size of your current collection? It doubled in the last three weeks. We're about 150. Holy shit. And that's because of babies, right? That's because of babies. We had a killer season this year. I, I paired seven, uh, and I got six. Wow. Yeah. That, yeah. dude. The, uh, <laughs> wow. Luck. Total, total great, luck. Great job, man. Yeah, total luck. All right, man. Number two, husbandry-related questions. So are you a frozen and thawed guy or a life guy, and what's your betting choice? So I start all the babies uh, for their first three meals on live, and um, I, I do that for a couple of reasons. I think I think it stimulates some of these you know natural instincts that they have. Um, it's less obtrusive. You know, some of the some of the babies are a little bit shy, and you know to have a you know a, a little bald guy coming in there with a you know tongs and a, d- dangling a, a you know um, a mouse. There's nothing natural or instinctive about that. So right. um, I know some guys start babies uh, off from you know from frozen thrall right off the bat, but I, I just think it, uh, it seems to me to be a, a better way to get them established. So the first three, I do that and then I'll switch them over. And, and I, I've had a really good, um, success rate with that. And then frozen thawed throughout, um, beyond there. Um, and I, I'm lucky enough to have, uh, an ICU nurse couple, uh, that I know, um, they have a, a, a rat, um, farm basically, uh, not too far away. And, they used to actually provide uh, Pete Call with his. They'd come up. Oh, come no up, kidding! Yeah, I mean they they have a big operation, and and they're John Romeo turned me on to them, and they're right here, and they're great people. So uh, shout out to Chuck, um, and um, betting. I I start the babies on. Um, I actually for the first week I, I put them on some sphagnum moss just to keep everything moist and oh, okay. make sure they have a good shed um, right out of the gate. Um, I forget who told me that. Uh, That's actually really smart. Holy shit. I I wish I would have thought of that. Yeah, it's nice. It kind of keeps it, you know, you don't have to constantly uh, worry about your humidity. I mean, I, I do a pretty good job of kind of keeping the ambient conditions in the, in the whole room, um, where they would need to be to keep a boa happy. And then I have little microclimates in the actual tubs, but, um, I do that for the babies. And then after their shed, I'll put them on paper towel, um, make sure they're well-established eating well. Uh, and that decreases the risk of any kind of, you know, ingestion of any farm material or anything like that. Um, but I then switch them probably at about a month to six weeks. I switch them onto aspirin, the chips, not the shredded aspirin, but the, those little fine chips. Yep. Um, and um, I think it was J- James Rubio that mentioned it. It's a, it's a really good point. I think that starts to help them develop better um, muscle tone. Yeah. Yeah. And in um, as an old timer that. Um, once told me at a, at a reptile show, you know, you don't want to leave them on something completely flat for too long because they start to get this uh, kind of uh, they're 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 used to being on a flat surface and they start to get this kind of um, they lose their their lateral musculature and they kind of flatten out or fatten out at the bottom. Huh. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that I've had any direct uh, experience with that, but it made sense to me and. Um, and then as they get a little bit older, I, I switch them over to shredded aspen uh, for the you know um, juveniles and adults. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yep. All right, man. Yep. Um, number three, what's your favorite more for a locality? Definitely blood, no question. Um, locality, I, I you know I love. It's probably a toss up between um, uh, BCO and uh, Peruvians. I love some of those Quito's Peruvians that some of them look like they're glowing. They have such amazing coloration. Um, but I'm not a locality guy. All right, man. Number four, what is the most overrated morphing, your opinion? 
Everybody's favorite um, question. <laughs> yeah, everybody's favorite because nobody wants to be nobody wants to insult anybody that's working with it. Um, so I, I think the fire gene for me. Um, I you know I my collection is really built on bold aggressive patterns, and um, and I think that an animal should have more value the farther it goes into its genetic um, fulfillment, so to speak. So I, I think the the, the visual of, of a gene should be more impressive than uh, a het. And I think that the fire gene has its value in its hets for me. I, I think they do amazing things to enhance color. and um, They kind of reduce pattern, but they clean everything up. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, but the next stage of that is a white snake, which to me is kind of the opposite of what I really like. Um, but, you know, I think that's probably why I feel that way about that gene. I think there's other you know, color enhancers, uh, and pattern enhancers that are out there that add more, um, that could replace the role of a, of a fire. Yeah, no, totally, man. Uh, number five, what is the most underrated morph in your opinion? Uh, I, I'm going to say, you know, we already talked about the paradise and the paradigm. I'd probably say that, uh, but at risk of, um, repeating what we previously talked about, I think the square tail gene is a pretty underrated gene. I, I really like it. Um, I, I like I like recessive genes. I, I tend to follow those, and I think it's really cool to have a, a recessive gene that has both um, coloration uh, components and and pattern components. So I, I think that's kind of a sleeper gene for me. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that one, dude. And I really, really love what actually what Square Tail does with Key West. When you yeah, combine those really two, cool dude, things. like it, yeah. it just takes the colors to another level. I have a couple of square tail animals over here that yeah. I picked up from Brad Sherman, and man, I yeah, love, those guys love, love stuff. those. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of, that's kind of one of the one of the sub sub projects that I have, and of course, I, I actually uh, made a double hat red pastel square tail this year, and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna start bringing that into some of these other uh, projects that I have going. So I'm excited about that. That's awesome, man. All right, dude. At number six, what is your favorite part of the hobby? Uh, I think my favorite part of the hobby, you know, is I, I, I actually share this hobby with my kids, um, especially when I have twin boys, and especially one of them is really, really into it. And it, it, it really allows us to spend a lot of, you know, good time together. And I think that's, again, that's my, my most important thing is my family. And I think that uh, that is probably the thing that I really, really uh, enjoy the most. I mean, we've gone to Tinley together. You know, I don't get to go and do any of the adult stuff when I go to Tinley, but you know, um, I get to spend time with my son and, and things like that are a lot of fun. Um, the, the other part that I really enjoy is the genetic components of, of how they express themselves visually and, and trying to pick apart a litter and, and you start to see patterns if you repeat breed and, you know, what does this gene do and, and what is that going to translate to in four years? And I, I think those are the kind of the, the investigative work of trying to figure out what genes do what and what um, little hidden kind of nuances there are in different litters. I, I think that's really kind of intellectually stimulating for me. So that's that's fun. Awesome, man. All right. Number seven. What is the worst part of the hobby? So I think the worst part of the hobby I think this, you know, the easy answer is, you know, tire kickers and low ballers and, um, but I think I'll, I, other guys have talked about that and I'll try to take a different route. Um, I'll tell you the worst part of the hobby for me is trying to sell these animals. I love all these animals that I produce. I'm, I'm so, you know, I, I, you know, I love 
I don't think I can get rid of some of these things. And it's really hard. <laughs> That's the hardest thing. I'm with you, me. dude. Yeah, it's hard. You know, you make these really cool things. These people call you and say, hey, I'm really interested. And, you know, they're, they're willing to offer you really serious money. And, and you're just like, oh, God, I don't know if I can. I don't think I can get rid of it. So I think the hardest thing for me is deciding what to keep and what to give up. And maybe that's because I'm, I'm still, you know, relatively kind of new back in the hobby, um, even though I, I've been doing it for a long, long time. I, you know, back into the breeding part of it, I, um, I, I think I need to still, I still feel like I need to create a foundation. So it's hard for me to give stuff up. So I'm a little bit of a hoarder right now. Yeah, no, dude, that's completely understandable. Plus, you know, we spend a lot of time and effort trying yeah. to produce the certain snakes that we end up having in our hobby and selling stuff especially stuff that you would consider your own holdbacks yeah you know it's tough man like here honestly you know what part drives me nuts and much love to all my boys that come up here like uh we were talking about kind of offline every uh third uh weekend of august i have this huge you know uh bow hunt over here that i host for a bunch of friends and many of them are from the reptile and bow world right and when guys come up here, it's basically like a giant shit show. Guys, you know, <laughs> essentially fly in with their bows and a sleeping bag, right? That's and awesome. uh, you know, the house looks like a like my house looks like a college, you know, frat house during That's that perfect. during that old, week, right? Old school. Yeah, dude. Because I mean, there's guys sleeping everywhere, and a couple of guys wind up obviously sleeping in the bow room because it's nice and warm, right? And uh, when they do so, you know. They're going to open tubs. They're going to look at stuff. And a lot of them will look at certain holdbacks. And, you know, there's been a couple of times where they've offered me really, really good money for it, you know, to the point yeah. where, you know, you're seriously considering it. And then obviously my they, they'll do it in front of my wife oh, no, very strategically, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. Because then my wife's like, yeah, dude, sell the damn snake. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't want to. You know, this is exactly yeah. what I've been chasing for three, four years. Yeah, and to be able to watch them develop, you know, I, I, I've really been working hard to try to get some bloodlines that get better with age, especially with blood. I could, that's been a hard thing to, I think, convince some people of that they don't brown out with age necessarily. And so I don't, you know, I don't want to get rid of them. At, I definitely don't want to get rid of them at six months. Yeah, you know, I'm finding that now my animals are, you know, two years, three years out, and they're getting better and better, and I don't want to miss it. So yeah, I, no, absolutely, dude. So I'll keep those. <laughs> All right, man. Number eight. What other species do you keep and why? And if you don't currently keep other species, what other species would you like to potentially keep in the future? Uh, I So I don't know if I mentioned, if we were talking offline or I, I, I have a dog kennel. Um, so yep. we have um, we have Tamascans, uh, which is a rare breed of dog that kind of looks like a wolf. Um, so that's non-reptile related, but love, love, love that um, whole thing it's it's a blast um i right now i don't keep other um species but i am um in the process of preparing to get into uh basins oh okay cool <clears throat> yeah you know i i kind of miss the emeralds and I, I i really used to love the arboreals and at the time um i was keeping northerns but the uh basins were just starting to uh be imported um when i was getting out to kind of go and and you know chase my my education. So, um, but I'm, I'm, it's amazing what, you know, guys like Ed Marino are doing. And, um, so I'm, I'm really, um, I'm going to get back into those at some point and, uh, I'm starting to do my research now. Yeah, dude, I am, I'm a hundred percent with you on that. Yeah. Ever since I had Warren Booth on the show, dude, I've been Googling basins a hell of a lot, dude. Yeah. And, you know, looking at stuff 
like yeah, that. They're yeah, they're amazing. They're amazing. The bloodlines that they're working with now and some of these high whites and snowflake line and the diamond line are and right. it's just really cool. Yeah. All right, man. Number nine. What is a common misconception about you? <laughs> so it's funny. Uh, so I'm a, a sports medicine doc, and um, so I, I take care of a lot of athletes, a lot of them, a lot of pro athletes, high level athletes, football players. Um, before the you know Arena Football League closed, I was the team doctor for the Philadelphia Soul. So oh, cool. Yeah, and so people, you know, they look up your bio or whatever, and you know, it's fo- college football player you know, division one football player and track athlete and people come in and, you know, I'll, I'll go in and talk and they'll be like, well, when's the doctor coming in? And, uh, I'll say, I am the doctor. And they'll be like, you, you're too small to be a football player. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm a little guy, but I'm, I'm with you. I feel you yeah, on that, dude. I was, um, so, you know, I always kind of have this can line when I come back, I'm like, well, I don't have to be as big as you if you can't catch me. And, uh, cause I was a receiver, kick return, punt return. So I was fast. I ran, right. you know, I was a hundred dash and you know, 60 meter indoor. And, um, so, uh, I think the misconception is that I was a, this big hulking football player and I'm really just a little guy. Hey man, that's a good misconception to have. Dude. Yeah, I've right. been exploiting that same misconception my whole yeah. life. Yeah. Cause when right. most people imagine special ops guys, they imagine this, these huge Arnold Schwarzenegger like, right. Uh, yeah, guys. you're right. Same thing. And uh, yep, you know not. what? There's definitely guys like that out there, but they're actually the exception to the rule. The majority of us are pretty average looking. You know, we look like yep. dudes that are in shape, but, yep. you know, you can pick us out of a lineup for the most part, and that's kind of the way that we enjoy it. That's right. All right, brother. Number 10. What makes you say, what was I thinking when you look back at your time in the hobby? You know, I, I, I think I got to be honest. I, I don't. You know, some of the, like we talked, some of the trips back and forth across the country with boas in my car and setting up a temporary, you know, closet in, in my room when I come home on break, things like that. that but that was all fun. Uh, I, I really don't have any regrets. I think, frankly, you know, both personally and professionally, I think you learn through your struggles. And I think that all the things that, you know, were hard uh, during my you know, development of this hobby and, and getting, um, getting into it, out of it, into it again. Um, I think they've all been important lessons. So I, I don't, I don't know there's any, been any real big, what was I thinking moments to be honest, which is probably good. Yeah. Cool. Uh, number 11, what's one tip you would give the people looking to invest in boas? Um, have a plan. Um, I think that's probably the, the biggest, uh, thing that I would say, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, preparing your environment before you start bringing animals in. I think that's probably a good one too, but have a plan. Uh, I, I would, you know, if I could go back, I'd, uh, I'd buy females first in projects that really, um, had, um, a, a future and, um, and, and had my interest. Um, and then I'd, I'd see, you know, where that project starting to go and then I'd, I'd follow those females up with males um you know that are appropriate breeding age you know i, I like to um wait until my females are are definitely four four and a half you know in that season right um before i breed them uh, you know i did make a mistake early on of trying to breed a female early because i was a little impatient um so i think patience is probably another recommendation i would give but and uh and i lost her um she she actually dropped um on her on her, you know, um, one Oh five post. Oh no, man. She, she dropped, she dropped, she dropped two, she dropped two babies and, and then stopped. And, you know, I didn't want to bother her. Uh, in retrospect, I should have, um, 
I came back later and, you know, it's, it was unfortunate. I had my son with me and she's upside down with her mouth wide open. Yeah. Know the feeling. Yeah. She was full of babies. So I, I, oh. I did my own necropsy after, um, she was full of babies and she had a, uh, like a partially developed, almost mummified, um, um, embryo that was blocking her, her oviduct. So she couldn't pass the rest of the babies. And, you know, in retrospect, I'm not sure I could have done anything about that, but, um, right. you know, it was unfortunate. And I'll tell you one piece of advice I would give, um, breeders now, yeah, you know, you hear stories a lot about females dying, um, around pregnancy or during pregnancy or, um, I had two females this year. So ever since that happened, I made a point of after delivery doing a really, really good job. I, I, um, John Romeo gave me this trick of, of letting your, um, females after they deliver soak in a little bit of really dilute uh, Listerine. So you fill warm water in a bucket and put a little Listerine in there so that it, the smell of the, of the birth uh, comes off of them. And so they, they're not as nasty when they come back out. Um, yep. it, seems, it seems to work. So, but I, I do a really good job of, of palpating or, or running my, my thumb or my fingers down their belly and making sure that I don't feel any retained, um, any retained slugs or babies or anything. And two of the six girls that delivered this year, I actually milked slugs out of oh, no after kidding. she delivered. And if that stays there, that's potentially going to start to decompose and necrose and potentially lead into an infection. Um, and, or it's going to cause scarring in their, in their, um, you know, oviduct, which could prevent further deliveries from successfully passing through. So, um, I, it's a little tip that I give people now just because, um, I, I think that that could prevent further, problems and they were pretty subtle uh, i'll tell you they were full-size slugs but pretty subtle and i'm i feel like you know given my experience with surgery i'm uh, you know pretty perceptive with my fingers but uh yeah you know and uh you know i grossed out my kids because we plopped a slug in the bucket you know uh, after pushing it out but it 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 i think it'll have potentially saved them and, and me from a lot of heartache down the line. Dude, I'm glad you said that because I learned that lesson, uh, that hard lesson myself uh, last season, yeah. right? I ended up losing a female for a similar reason. And then ever since yeah. that moment, the one thing that I've always done is I palpate and I ultrasound post-birth uh, just yeah. to make sure that there's nothing else stuck. Because it was the same thing. There was a slug that she had retained in her, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That yep. actually... Um, we didn't catch it. You know, she lived another actual, actually another four months. Mm. And, and she just kept going downhill. I couldn't figure out what was happening. Yeah. It got to the point where she wasn't eating. I was like, well, you know, I've had yep. boys go off a of feed for a long time. Maybe it's just one of those things. But typically, you know, after a good bath, they tend to be pretty aggressive feeders post-birth, yeah. at least all the ones that I've had in the past. And this one just wasn't recovering. Eventually, you know, came into the snake room and they opened up the cage and I found her you know, yeah. upside down. And yep. when I did the necropsy, I found the exact same thing. There was like a calcified slug in her that yeah. I don't think ever had processed its way out. Yeah, I think that everybody should do that after their bows deliver. Awesome, man. All right, final question, number 12. Any shout-outs you want to throw out there? Yeah, definitely definitely shout-out to John Romeo. I, I, you know, he's been such a great help to me, um, you know, in this in this hobby. And uh, Bob and Ryan Horst, uh, you know, the, jo the Jersey Boa Mafia, um, those guys are, are, you know, really, really solid guys. I'm glad to have them close by. Um, uh, little shout out to Gary Audette. He's a buddy of mine up in New York. Who's got uh, some amazing projects going on and he's got a, a killer 
killer potential uh, litter due in another couple of weeks with the uh, Paradigm Blood Project. I'm not going to ruin it for him. I'll let him. It's his thunder, not mine. Yeah, awesome. All right, guys. Well, that wraps it up for today. So, Brad, tell the people out there where they can see more of your animals and learn more about you. Yeah, so I uh, list all my animals on Morph Market. We're actually in the process now of getting through our last sheds for our uh, baby uh, litters that came out this season, and I'll be uh, posting those soon. Um, we're on Facebook, Breakneck Boa Company. Uh, also, Instagram, uh, breakneck.boa.co. Um, just quick mention, there is there is another uh, boa uh, hobbyist out there that has a, a page called Breakneck Boas. That's not me. Um, so we're breakneck boa company. So just, just a little clarification, uh, no big deal. Um, and then, uh, if you need to email, uh, we're at breakneck.boa.co at gmail.com. Awesome guys. All right. Thanks for listening. We are out. Guys, that was a great episode. Thanks to Dr. Brad Bernardini of breakneck boa company. Join us for our next episode as we speak with Tony Pantaleo of Sencal Exotics. We're going to talk about his work with locality boas and our shared love of falconry. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you guys tuning in. Do us a favor. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. Until next time, grow them slow. <laughs>